Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. This week, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mark Hamilton in the podcast. Dr. Hamilton is a neurosurgeon at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary. Dr. Hamilton helped us walk through a number of neurosurgical issues that are pertinent to general surgeons, such as hydrocephalus, the role of craniectomy in traumatic brain injuries, and DVT prophylaxis in patients with traumatic brain injuries. As always, send your comments and feedback to podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking out the time to come and join us and speak with us on a really important topic that we share across our specialties. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and your training pathway? Sure. Thanks for uh, inviting me. It's uh, it's, uh, a real pleasure to be here. Um, So I grew up uh, in uh, a relatively... uh, a small town uh, in uh, Northern Ontario, uh, north of Sudbury. Um, population, I think, maxed out at about 4,000. Uh, and then I went to uh, uh, University of Toronto for my undergraduate degree, then to McGill for medical school. And then uh, I was actually in the armed forces for three years. Uh, I went through med school with the medical officer's training program, or training plan, I think they called it. Uh, I went to... Uh, uh, Ottawa for three years. I ended up doing uh, two years of cardiology as part of my service. And then as part of the reward for my three years due, I, I got my uh, equivalent of an R2 year of uh, general surgery. I did my um, uh, uh, first year as a rotating intern at St. Paul's in Vancouver uh, before I went on to Ottawa. And then I came to uh, Calgary to do neurosurgery. I did uh, my neurosurgery. Uh, and then went to uh, Phoenix, uh, Arizona, to the Barrow Neurological Institute. I did a, a fellowship in skull base and vascular, uh, and then stayed for an extra six months and did a fellowship in pediatric neurosurgery before coming back to Calgary in uh, January 1994. Interesting transition when you move from Phoenix to Calgary in January, vetting year. Um, quite uh, cold uh, experience. Uh, there's an adaptation process that occurs when you're down south that uh, was quite it was, it was quite an adjustment. Uh, and so I started on staff working uh, both peds and adults, but uh, um, um, initially uh, almost all peds, but uh, very quickly uh, started to develop uh, an active adult practice in cerebral vascular uh, and uh, transitioned uh, over time uh, to the point where now I don't do pediatrics. Uh, I don't do cerebrovascular uh, disease uh, anymore. Uh, I do probably adult hydrocephalus, uh, adult brain tumor in general, neurosurgical call. So I came to Calgary for my training uh, for a couple of reasons. One, my uh, wife was uh, doing pediatric residency in Calgary at the time. uh, And uh, I was in Ottawa finishing up my term in the military. Uh, so that, and I liked the program because it had uh, a lot of clinical experience and the people were, it seemed very uh, um, nice uh, and uh, I thought it would be a good experience. And it was, it was a, it was a great uh, residency experience. Uh, and then uh, when we uh, went to the States, my uh, wife was doing uh, pediatric emergency medicine at the Children's Hospital. Uh, we uh, went to the uh, States to do uh, my uh, fellowship. Uh, and then we're looking at jobs in uh, the U.S. and Canada, and an opportunity uh, came uh, up in Calgary, and that's how we ended up back in Calgary. We have, you know, like most people, 
um, we look for a place that has a, a you know, good program, a place where you can do the work you want to do. Uh, and if you have family nearby, that's a bonus. And so we had family nearby and that was a reason to come back. So that's what we did. Uh, so interesting. You know, Dr. Hamilton, you were obviously, uh, as you mentioned, a, a, a primary pediatric neurosurgeon for a very long time. And we were curious, what, what, how was that? How did you, how did you like that? How did you frame that? And, and I wonder, do you miss it? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I liked pediatrics, always liked pediatrics uh, uh, before I even went away to do uh, my fellowship. Um, I, uh, uh, when I was offered the opportunity to do pediatrics, uh, it was uh, with the assumption that I would do pediatrics and adult neurosurgery. And eventually that became uh, a taxing uh, venture because it was, uh, there were years when it was basically full-time pediatrics and full-time adults uh, with not much in the middle and it was uh, pretty busy, uh, but I, I like pediatrics, the different world, uh, pediatric neurosurgery is a different, different world, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, um, I eventually made the transition to uh, a full adult practice because of the need for a transitional process in uh, pediatrics. Uh, when I arrived in 1994, uh, Terry Miles was the only uh, pediatric neurosurgeon in the city, and uh, uh, was exhausted, uh, and that was, so we needed to build a program that uh, was sustainable. And uh, having me hang on to the last minute was not going to allow that to happen. Uh, so I, I was willing to make that transition. And at the same time, I was also developing this um, interest in uh, trans transitional care. And uh, over the years, by um, just the way things were set up, I uh, I looked after patients that uh, uh, I first got involved with when they were uh, as children, and then when they became adults, I, I assumed they were carrying my adult practice, and started to do more and more adult hydrocephalus, and then realized that there was a huge gap in the care models uh, for this uh, patient group. And so when I made the transition, it was knowing what I was going to be developing was something that I already had uh, a foothold in. Um, and do I miss pediatrics? Absolutely. I uh, really, uh, it was, uh, so it was a wonderful experience. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people, I enjoyed the families. Uh, I've sort of reached the other end of the spectrum because now I'm, my practice is predominantly geriatric. Um, a huge part of my hydrocephalus practice has now become geriatric. So I used to see uh, children with their families. Now I see uh, patients with their children um, uh, much more commonly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up hydrocephalus. And maybe we can drill down on a, on a couple of uh, uh, questions related to that before we talk about head injuries. I, I'm curious, um, you, you know, my sense is that hydrocephalus is a, is a diagnosis that's missed consistently and often and um, you know, both by families and primary care physicians as well as specialists. So I guess the first thing is what, what sort of things do you look for maybe as a non-neurosurgeon in diagnosing hydrocephalus? That's a good question. And it, uh, it whenever I, I uh, end up talking to somebody about hydrocephalus, I step back and say, you know, if we talk about adults with hydrocephalus, we're not talking about one disorder. And the problems and challenges vary uh, from subtype to subtype. And uh, a number of years ago, um, I uh, proposed a, a rather pragmatic uh, uh, organizational con uh, construct. Uh, and uh, it helps because each of, each of these groups has different different issues. So one, one group is the uh, patients that were diagnosed as children. So they transitioned to an adult uh, um, hospital care, clinical care environment. Uh, those uh, patients, typically carry uh, different issues related to their shunt management, different risks for many of them when their shunts fail. And they are, I think at a higher percentage when their shunts fail, they get into more acute uh, situations uh, because uh, some of them are extremely shunt dependent. Uh, they also have a, a, a not insignificant number of them showing up with uh, pseudocysts um, in the abdomen, uh, which you have to be aware of and look for uh, uh, if they come in with shunt failure. Uh, then there's a group that uh, uh, is uh, acquired hydrocephalus. And these are the patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, brain tumor, trauma. And they, you know, they, they've always 
been around, so to speak. I think people have always sort of uh, recognized that this occurs, but there's different strategies that exist on how people uh, approach the management. And if you look at the literature, for instance, on subarachnoid hemorrhage and shunt dependence, you'll see that it ranges from anywhere from about 5% to 50% in studies, very retrospective, often without uh, defined protocols. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in sorting those out. Uh, and uh, even the, the management of an external ventricular drain in the subarachnoid hemorrhage population with hydrocephalus, or initial, uh, initial hydrocephalus ventricular megaly is uh, not very well uh, established. Um, when you come to brain, brain trauma, this same issues. Uh, as people try and figure out, is this the brain trauma result? Is this the hydrocephalus now becoming an issue result? Are the changes on the scan related to atrophy or are they related to progressive ventricular enlargement because they can't manage their CSF? So that, 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 that's a whole group. Then the third group is this uh, group of uh, patients who uh, uh, present and they're usually middle aged. So anywhere from, depending on what you define as middle aged, uh, usually uh, it's sort of in the 40s to early 60s. Um, quite the average is about 55 to 58. These are patients who have unrecognized, previously undiagnosed uh, ventricular megaly, hydrocephalus. And they uh, present uh, sometimes because they're found with big ventricles, uh, because they've had a head trauma, they had a CT for a headache uh, problem. Um, and they uh, get referred because of big ventricles, uh, or they had aggressive memory problems, uh, which is a significant issue in, in this group. Uh, some of these patients uh, require uh, intervention and some of them require observation and longitudinal care to determine uh, uh, when they are they might get into trouble. But we have a process to sort that out. Uh, the, the message that we give to um, uh, care providers in the emergency room is we have somebody with big ventricles. Um, uh, we'd rather see them and sort out whether this is an issue for them rather than miss them. When you miss these people, they show up in their late 60s, early 70s with quite significant, profound dementia, often uh, not reversible by that time. And then finally, the fourth group is the INPH group, the idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus group. Um, INPH is a, for some people, is a controversial diagnosis. Uh, uh, that's based on old uh, literature, old understandings. Uh, in INPH, this is the elderly patient. Uh, the definition usually we use requiring age above 60. But the average age when you look at this group is somewhere around 75 to 877. And this group, they present with this non-specific triad. Uh, so it's uh, a gait disturbance, uh, cog cognitive disturbance, and bladder urgency and frequency. And you have to put those three out there as, you know, and you, you talk about 70, five and 80 year olds, people might say, well, you know, that could be just old age, but this is a progressive problem for these people. And they, they almost always have to have gait. And by gait, I mean balance and stability, uh, slowing shuffling of gait. Uh, and for cognitive uh, issues, it really depends on where you, where you intersect with the person in the time course of the disease. And ur bladder urgency and frequency are uh, people usually ask about incontinence, but usually these people have urgency and frequency. And the incontinence comes often when they, they just can't mobilize fast enough to get to the washroom. So it's a, it's, a, it's a diagnosis that needs to be sorted out. It's often missed because it's attributed to old age. Uh, there was an interesting study done a number of years ago where they went into three nursing homes in West Virginia, and they looked at just the patients who had a symptom complex that would suggest you should at least investigate with a CT scan or uh, and do some further investigations. 10% uh, of the group met the basic criteria and had not been investigated. Uh, we were doing a project looking at the uh, epidemiology of hydrocephalus with the Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, what startled me was the number of patients who end up in nursing homes. Uh, this is across Canada and probably across North America who never never have a CT scan, they've got a diagnosis of dementia, they don't have a CT scan, they, they've never seen a, a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. Uh, they have dementia, and if you walk out into a crowd, and I think you ask people, you know, who, 
what does dementia mean to you? It would be Alzheimer's disease. So by by default, these people get labeled as having Alzheimer's disease. And INPH is uh, potentially reversible if you identify it early enough. Uh, and there are processes that uh, we uh, are quite comfortable with in terms of uh, undertaking that mission. So the message basically is, if you are elderly and you've got cognitive gait issues, don't dismiss it as Alzheimer's disease. If you're middle-aged and you've got cognitive issues, don't dismiss it uh, at all. Those patients need investigation uh, with CT and MR. Um, and if you are uh, a transition patient, uh, uh, you need some place to look after you for the rest of your life. Uh, because uh, when you become an adult, your problem doesn't go away. You know, one of the things you, you briefly mentioned in, in chatting there was, was the EVD and, you know, your hydrocephalus practice is obviously internationally renowned and, and, and you're a, a famous guy for, for that reason. And I also realized that the, the peer-reviewed publication is not out yet, but you're doing some really interesting work with um, the general surgery side of things in terms of laparoscopic placement of VP shunts. C can you touch on that and, and sort of why that's been so helpful, particularly with regard to distal shunt obstruction and failure? Sure, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, when, you, when you look at uh, 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 hydrocephalus in general, people still think it's a pediatric problem. Um, when, you look, when you deal with kids and shunts, uh, when shunts fail, they tend to fail proximally. So a shunt is made up of three, three main uh, parts, a ventricular catheter, for a VP shunts rather, a ventricular catheter, a valve, and a distal catheter that goes either into the abdomen or potentially into the uh, uh, superior vena cava uh, atrial junction. So uh, when you look at kids, it's proximal failure. When you look at adults, especially older adults, it's distal failure. And it's very, uh, proximal failure occurs very infrequently. And there's lots of reasons that we go into to explain that, but just recognizing that uh, and not doing something about it, um, uh, you end up with a, a distal failure rate that approaches 50% uh, at uh, three and a half to four years. Uh, and that, uh, when you, we did a, we've undertaken a, that's local experience when we, when I, and then we started looking at prospective data. When you look at, uh, um, um, we did a, or we're doing a systematic review meta-analysis of shunt failure in adult patients. Uh, when you look at that pop, that literature, uh, the first uh, message from the literature is it's horrible uh, because it's very poorly done. Uh, you end up with less than 100 papers where you can extract data. And the data suggests that there's a 15% shunt failure rate at six months. And that's all adults. So that's those four different disorders. Uh, uh, so uh, shunt failure is a uh, is a is a common uh, issue, um, and so what we, one of the things uh, we started doing, and uh, I ended up uh, collaborating uh, uh, with uh, uh, with you, Chad, as, you, as you're, well, you're well aware, if others may not be, um, and we started looking at what can we do with the distal end of the catheter to avoid this complication. Uh, I was doing more shunt revisions than I was shunt insertions. So if you do longitudinal care and you put shunts in and they fail, you end up revising them and then they will fail again and you keep revising them. And these operations were re removing the catheter and simply putting it back in the belly. So it wasn't that they were plugged, they were just not, they were in a position where they couldn't drain properly. And the, the traditional method of doing a shunt, uh, the peritoneal catheter insertion for a shunt is simply to make a, a, a they call it a mini laparotomy, uh, which, uh, uh, is a really mini, uh, and you end up uh, uh, getting access to the peritoneal cavity and you just slide the catheter, which is coming down subcutaneously into the peritoneal cavity. And then it just floats freely. So uh, NPH patients, for instance, for instance don't, have, don't have high driving pressures to their shunts. Very easy to create distal back pressure and block their shunt. So uh, uh, there was a paper published a number of years ago called, uh, using what was called the falciform technique. Uh, and um, it was a it was a retrospective series of hemorrhoids, uh, fifty or sixty patients, and they um, they used a laparoscopic approach. Had the catheter come in uh, about the level of the the, uh, the zippy sternum, and then uh, make a hole in the falciform ligament and tuck it behind the liver, uh, and uh, then that would keep it away from the omentum and the other things that could. Uh, 
potentially obstruct the shot. So we started doing this. Uh, we had to learn and modify as we went along, as we, the instructions were, uh, uh, and the technical issues were not very well elaborated. Uh, and we did a prospective series of consecutive patients. Uh, the shunt failure rate uh, doing that, um, and also I added uh, image guidance uh, for uh, passing of the ventricular catheter, which is still done in the majority of places in the world freehand, uh, even though image guidance is available at most uh, modern neurosurgical centers. Uh, and that combination, and most of it, the effect was from the abdomen, uh, dropped the shunt failure rate to about 16% at uh, three and a half to four years. So a very dramatic reduction in distal catheter failure rates, very dramatic reduction in the number of secondary failure rates. And by examining the characteristics of the abdomen with the laparoscope, rather than just blindly stuffing a catheter into the abdomen, we could document uh, whether there were a lot of adhesions, a lot of scarring, uh, whether um, uh, there was a lot of momentum uh, uh, up over the liver that might block the distal catheter, even if we placed it in our optimal position. Uh, and uh, with all that, I think we've learned uh, when patients, even when you think the abdomen might work, it's just not going to work very well. And there's an alternative shunt called the VA shunt, uh, where we've uh, modified the techniques for insertion of that. Uh, one of the re last remaining things we have to sort of struggle with is the fact that the catheters that stay behind the liver, the failure rate is extremely low. Uh, the catheters that uh, we put behind the liver, some of them pop out very quickly. Uh, and those go on to fail at a rate that's very similar to the uh, non-microscopic group. So there are things that could be further modified to improve this, but I think this is a, uh, and this the number of patients in this series is, uh, is uh, uh, about 240, about uh, half of them before laparoscopic and half of them after all consecutive prospective uh, patients. So it's a, I think it's a pretty, large group, powerful group. It's, uh, we're just doing some revisions for the paper and I'm hoping it will be accepted and uh, uh, soon as we uh, submit it. We're also submitting uh, a, um, a video uh, 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 equivalent to Joe, Jove uh, for uh, review. One of the neat things about that work is how you uh, cross different specialties and, and put the brains together with uh, different specialties uh, to do things that we wouldn't have traditionally thought of as a, as something that would involve both general surgery and neurosurgery. So congratulations on, on all that really amazing work. We wanted to leverage your expertise as well to chat a bit about head injuries uh, with, with our audience being mainly general surgeons. Can you talk a bit about how to classify traumatic brain injuries for us? And um, let's say someone comes into the emergency department who is found to have a traumatic brain injury, who needs further assessment? Yeah, that's a, a good um, uh, question. Uh, you know, there's lots of different classifications uh, that are used. Uh, uh, is it, you know, clinical classifications, uh, CT classification, uh, you know, whether it's diffuse uh, focal, uh, diffuse axonal injury type of injury uh, uh, pattern for the patient. I mean, I think most people end up classing, classifying from a pragmatic uh, viewpoint uh, classify head injuries as uh, or traumatic brain injury as uh, um, you know, mild, moderate, and severe. Uh, there's uh, you know, uh, different strategies for each of those groups and you know, making that assessment of the degree of uh, severity of the head injury. Is it in the first you know, uh, hour or is it uh, in the first six hours? So uh, you know, the Glasgow Coma Scale, I think most people are familiar with. So you know, coma scale of, you know, 14, 15 out of 15 is usually going to be mild uh, head injury, you know, 13 and below to 9, 9 to 13 is going to be sort of moderate and 8 and under, some people will call severe. There's a bit of uh, variability in how people use those terms, but that's the general sort of construct. Uh, if you have a mild head injury, and then, and then the other thing that you have to remember is that there's all this group of people who have very mild head injuries, but to have consequences from those head injuries uh, and they get classified as having concussional injuries. So mild mild head injuries by definition, uh, usually with a normal uh, GCS and uh, usually with a normal uh, CT scan. Uh, and that's how most, most people are assessed uh, in emergency department, not with MR imaging, but with CT scans. 
So um, a number of years ago, we, um, I think probably about eight or nine years ago, we, we, were, we were struggling with how do you define who needs to be at a tertiary care center in Calgary, for instance, uh, the Foothills Hospital, that's where nurse surgery is based, versus who with, uh, who can be kept at another center without risk of them deteriorating. Uh, and uh, we actually developed some guidelines, which I think to this day, uh, you know, uh, eight or nine years later, still hold true. Uh, and uh, uh, they we haven't had uh, any major uh, issues that I'm aware of uh, in the use of these to determine who who should or shouldn't be at a center. Uh, I think uh, you know, um, when you're looking, this gets to be a rather um, large uh, topic uh, as you dive deep into it. But, you know, symptom management, I think, for mild head injuries is important. Uh, you know, some patients may have a normal CT, but they can be very symptomatic and may require uh, uh, some additional help in the emergency department. Uh, the uh, uh, the the basic um, things that led us to divide, we divided the, the patients into those that we could do a phone consult uh, with the center, give them some advice, and those that we required transfer to the uh, uh, the Fortis Hospital. And this helps sort of organize, you know, the severe from the, uh, the moderate to severe and the mild. So, um, you know, I think part of it depended on their glossocoma scale. So a mild injury, 14 or 15, uh, for uh, GCS, uh, maybe had a small contusion on their CT or no contusion, small uh, epidural hematoma, uh, no shift, uh, a tiny depressed fracture. Uh, uh, those are all sort of compatible with staying at a center. Usually they, they might require uh, and may require uh, admission, but they don't have to be sent to a, uh, a, a tertiary center. And those patients will uh, often uh, just require symptom management uh, and uh, one of the questions that keep, we often get asked is, so do you repeat the CT scan? And that's going to vary depending on the number of factors. Uh, and then they may require a admission for one or two days for symptom management and to do a follow-up CT scan. So for that group, the one we're doing a phone consult and they may be admitted elsewhere. Uh, I think, you know, if they're on, uh, you know, uh, uh, antiplatelet agents, uh, in particular, uh, you know, Plavix, uh, if they're uh, on anticoagulants, particularly uh, DOAX, uh, they may be uh, at a higher risk uh, for expansion of their, you know, if they have small contusions or hemorrhage, maybe at a higher risk. Uh, the, um, there's a lot of work that's being done on trying to determine when you can not do a follow-up CT scan rather than even when you should do one uh, or can do one. Uh, lots of people will still do one 24 to 48 hours later uh, I think that there's probably future work that's going to help sort of sort out that and parse that a bit more. Uh, I, I at times will make recommendations not to repeat a CT scan and go on symptoms because it's so minuscule and having a dot of hemorrhage is not does not validate the need to necessarily do a hemorrhage if they're not on an antiplatelet agent or an anticoagulant. If somebody's on an anticoagulant or has a slightly bigger hemorrhage or contusion, but still under that threshold, and I, I, I often would recommend they, they do another scan. And the patients who get transferred uh, are, then you're starting to look at uh, people who have a, a clinically a moderately severe head injury, such as, a, you know, the glass coma scale less than 13 or less than equal to 13, rather. And then they've got evidence of, um, you know, a, a, a bigger uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, subdural hemorrhage, epidural hemorrhage, perhaps a midline shift. Uh, if they're starting to get a facement of the basal cisterns on their CT scan, that usually means you know they're, they're running out of room, and that, that's a higher risk uh, issue. If they have multiple hemorrhages that are, uh, um, you know, even though they may all be small, but there's multiple, multiple ones, that's something that we consider. Uh, compound depressed skull fractures, uh, uh, another category. A, a little depressed skull fracture, there is no indication, uh, re no required indication to elevate that. You can even, if there's a laceration, you can clean that out, wash it out, sew it up. Um, it, some centers will give a dose of ANSEP uh, at, at the time they do that. But if it's a compound depressed fracture with a lot of depression, uh, they usually should be at uh, uh, um, a tertiary care center because they, they may have underlying contusions or frequently do have underlying contusions. 
uh, basal skull fractures with CSF leaks uh, should be out of center. Um, and then um, uh, patients, uh, uh, as I mentioned, who are on anticoagulants uh, and uh, significant antiplatelet agents uh, uh, can be an issue. Uh, and then uh, that, that's basically how you end up determining who, uh, who, arrive, who needs to be at uh, a tertiary care center. And then that also sort of defines who's going to be most at risk potentially for getting into trouble. You know, there's, there's often a lot of emphasis on, on the management of traumatic brain injuries. Um, and I think that's beyond the scope of what we're, we're trying to do today. Uh, but one thing that I think uh, is still often isn't as talked about on, on lots of podcasts that I've listened to and lots of resources that I've read, um, but that comes up quite frequently when you're in the middle of the night on the trauma service is when, when do you actually need to consider a uh, surgical decompression? And, and sometimes I find that my, you know, my sense as a general surgery resident was often not uh, aligned necessarily with what would happen um, to that patient, let's say, who came in with a traumatic brain injury. So how do you sort of think about the patient that uh, needs a surgical decompression? That's a good question without an easy answer. Um, uh, it's a, you know, we always say it's a case by case basis, but there are, I think, some elements that are, you know, com- that there's common elements that come into play. I think, uh, you know, uh, the, I hope you all keep this organized as we're talking about it, but, you know, I think a patient who's um, got uh, massively destructive uh, brain injury um with uh, even with uh, you know a subdural um, uh, they've got evidence of uh, deray hemorrhages in the brain stem their GCS is extremely poor the, their pupils are blown uh, you know their brain stem reflexes are bad you know they may or may not be an anticoagulant that's a whole other sort of comp- complexity that adds added to this those patients uh, you really have to step back and say you know are you going to offer them anything of value in terms of uh, improving their outcome or survival, and the answer for many, for like almost all of those, is no. Uh, some people will. We tend to, I think, weigh it a little differently depending on age. But at that end of the spectrum, I don't think age is going to matter if your pupils are blown and your GCS is three. Doesn't matter how big the hemorrhage is; surgery is not going to help you. Um, when you get in uh, to the middle ground, uh, where you've got somebody who's they're in the moderate severity uh, head injury. Uh, with uh, GCS 13 and under, uh, those are um, um, patients where you're you're struggling a bit more with, or what we struggle a bit more with. So it's often you know. So what is their the status of their pupils? If you have somebody who is younger, they often can't accommodate uh, uh, the blood volume. Uh, they don't have the space to accommodate it. And there's this. Um, uh, doctrine it's called the Monroe Keeley doctrine that everybody learns about in neurosurgery when they start training that there's only a few things that are uh, in the head in the skull brain blood and CSF and if you start adding one the other has something else has to give you can uh, compensate up to a point but then you can't manage there's no, there's no more CSF to get out and that's when you start getting uh, uh, an effect uh, that might be herniation um, or you might have decreased several blood flow in general because of high ICP and you know, the, uh, the clinical consequences increase. So uh, a young person, you're going to see, uh, you might see that the uh, basal cisterns are more faced and uh, a subdural or an epidural might, even though they might be at a, the better end of a moderate spectrum, I might be more concerned and want to take that out. There is a, I must admit, a certain gestalt about the size of the subdural uh, or the epidural uh, that will push you one way or the other. Uh, I find it sort of um, makes me want to consider surgery rather than observation. Uh, and it's different for subdurals than even in epidurals. Uh, epidurals uh, size is important. Location is extremely important as well. So you, um, when uh, we, I did a paper with uh, one of the neuroradiologists, Carl Wallace, when I was a resident, we looked at the non-surgical management of epidural hematomas. And the only few patients in that series uh, um, that deteriorated were people who shouldn't have been watched anyway. Uh, they had epidurals in the middle fossa, 
those are patients that are more, you know, that gets, if they're at a, a, a there's a point where they can very quickly uh, move to uh, uncle herniation, blow their pupil and deteriorate. So the location of an epidural hematoma, they may not accommodate size there. Uh, whereas if you get a, a occipital region uh, epidural hematoma, uh, you might accommodate that extremely well and it might be very capable of watching it. Uh, acute subdural hematomas are usually associated with, you know, a more severe mechanism of injury. So these patients often, uh, you know, it's more vehicle accidents, acceleration, deceleration. Uh, there's usually more injury going on than you see on the scan. There's diffuse injury, um, um, uh, autoregulation in the brain uh, uh, for blood flow uh, is not probably disrupted. Uh, and uh, those patients, uh, uh, especially since that population tends to be younger, uh, you have to have a lower threshold for considering removal of the subdural uh, in an acute situation, especially if they haven't sort of reached into that you know, uh, totally uh, destructive phase. Uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, intracerebral hemorrhages with trauma are not uh, incredibly common. It's usually contusions that blossom. You do get the occasional uh, uh, hemorrhage, intracerebral hemorrhage with trauma, and those you just have to work on the overall uh, exam feature size. Um, and by size, you sort of end up looking, trying to calculate a, a volume and then determine whether uh, surgery is warranted. Is it superficial? Is it deep? Um, so all those factors come into play. Uh, I, I, you know, one of the, the big confounders that has come up in the past uh, um, number of years has been uh, the introduction of DOAX and uh, uh, even just the um, um, use of PAVIX over the years. Uh, patients who are on those agents, uh, even though we're, we're starting to get access to uh, um, uh, agents that can reverse the effects, uh, those those patients uh, uh, become extremely challenging to deal with when they present, no matter how big their hemorrhage is. Sort of on a related note, how do you think about who needs an intracranial monitor and how do you make that decision? So, so intracranial monitors, uh, you can divide them into uh, a number of different types. And then you can move from... Uh, and then there's the, the criteria, then the type. So just to make sure I don't forget the, um, the, the type aspect uh, uh, of the question. Uh, so uh, patients with uh, the general sort of rule of thumb, and I think it's a rule of thumb only, is that GCS eight and below, you know, more severe head injury should have an ICP monitor. And I would I would put quotation marks around should. So it really depends on if you're a, a GCS of three. Um, you know, uh, we'll look at other factors and, uh, you know, that have to be uh, dealt with uh, before we might consider an ICP monitor. Uh, is there any recoverability that's uh, possible? Um, if uh, your GCS is eight, uh, then uh, uh, ICP monitoring, you know, might be something worthwhile. Uh, um, uh, usually is worthwhile in terms of sorting out what's happening to the patient, managing their uh, cerebral confusion pressure uh, 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 as part as part of that algorithm, uh, so that becomes important for that for that uh, patient group. And then above that, it becomes really uh, you know uh, it depends on uh, uh, where you are. Uh, you know, if your GCS is 12, it's very unlikely you're going to get an ICP monitor. You need one, but unless you've got something that's producing hydrocephalus, and we fear that you're going to deteriorate. Um, and you know, not so much in trauma. But we had a gentleman who had a big basogangular hemorrhage, uh, and he was in the process of rapidly de deteriorating, and it was all hydro-related. So, so that the potential is there with uh, um, uh, trauma. You could get some interventricular blood to block your aqueduct and give you hydro. In which case, they're eventually their GCS is going to head there. But if the ventricles are enlarging, you have to consider that as a factor uh, earlier on. Uh, and it is, it's not, uh, you know, it's not something that is universally agreed upon using a you know, GCS 8 and below, but it's a point, I think you can sort of start to think about patients who hover around that, uh, you know, and, uh, above 8, uh, probably, you know, you have to be a little more select, very, very selective, and below 8, you should be doing it much more often. So the type of monitor is also relevant. <coughs> Excuse me. 
is the type of monitor is also very relevant. So there's um, there's an external ventricular drain, uh, which is a um, as a catheter that's placed into the ventricular system uh, that's hooked up to a closed draining system. So you can monitor ICP and remove CSF. So as I mentioned with the Monroe-Keeley doctrine, you only have three things in the brain: you have brain, blood, and CSF. So you can potentially remove CSF, so it can become a diagnostic therapeutic tool. Um, then there's uh, um, the next most commonly used thing is the interparenchymal monitor. Uh, and it's, uh, there are different companies that have these. Uh, Codman, for instance, makes one, and it's got a transducer on the end. You just simply put it into the parenchyma two centimeters or so in, uh, and um, it uh, can read ICP, but it cannot uh, um, uh, provide any opportunities for therapeutics. You can't remove CSF with it. So people, I think that EVDs, people will approach using EVDs as having the benefit of therapeutics, but the challenge in somebody with a head injury is hitting small or normal ventricles. And uh, the, uh, I guess our, our neurosurgery residents tend to do these often in the ICU. Uh, they have become very good at it uh, because of the teaching uh, that occurs and the standard methods that we use. Um, but these are done without image guidance. These are done by using landmarks and looking at the CT scan and aiming for the ventricles. If you look at the literature, the failure rate for hitting the ventricles is not insignificant. Uh, and uh, the number of patients who require multiple passes of a catheter to actually tap the ventricles is not insignificant. The risk of infection from an EVD is not insignificant. It probably approaches anywhere between five and 15%, depending on how long the catheter's in and whether you use a standard uh, infection reduction uh, protocol like they would do for central lines. Uh, that's generally absent in many centers. So the infection rates are all over the place when you look at the literature. So EVDs carry a higher uh, risk, but offer more potential benefit. I trained uh, when I was in Calgary as a resident uh, with a very um, uh, non-interventional approach to traumatic brain injury in terms of ICP monitoring. And uh, I actually uh, think we should be doing ICP monitoring um, uh, and we should be doing it uh, within the parameters I outlined because uh, I think it does give us a lot of advantage. The literature tends to support that. I think uh, otherwise you're flying blind uh, you know, when I was training, we were, we were told to use sequential CT scans. Uh, I think that's like, you know, it's like taking snapshots of a parade that's 12 miles long uh, every two minutes. You're going to keep missing things. And uh, so you miss opportunities when you use that kind of approach. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I think that, that makes total sense. You know, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of intervention, maybe at the opposite end of the spectrum, was about craniectomy or leaving the bone flap off. And it was a question I had for you because certainly in traveling internationally to various places, doing you know the visiting prof grand rounds thing, it seems that the the rate or the the fervor for doing craniectomy is massively variable in neurosurgical groups from trauma center to trauma center. So I'm curious what the what the foundational realities of that of that uh, um, procedure are, as well as the, the variability and what would explain that. Yeah, that's a really good question and um, uh, one that uh, people have tried to answer unsuccessfully. Uh, the um, there is incredible variability. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, the uh, uh, and I think there are two big clinical trials that were done. Um, both of them dealt with I think I think it was most of them were patients for bifrontal cranial craniectomy, decompressive craniectomies. Uh, most of the patients were um, further down the road in their uh, treatment. Uh, um, uh, process. So they, they, these were not uh, decompressed for an epidural or a subdural leave the bone flap off. These were patients who were you know, being managed their ICP got out of control and then they went on to do a decompressive craniectomy. Uh, it was the, uh, the rescue ICP trial and the DECRA trial uh, uh, were the two. And they, they, they answered things and they created a lot of questions. Um, you know, the, um, I think it 
even after these two randomized uh, trials were left with uh, a lot of uncertainty about uh, um, uh, the um, uh, the actual real benefits uh, in terms of uh, outcome uh, in when we, we do this. I think um, part of the controversy is what is a good outcome? Is it survival or is it, uh, is it uh, are we really looking at uh, and outcome measures that really say these patients don't just survive, but they actually uh, have a, a quality of life survival that makes it worthwhile to, to go through that. Uh, the, um, uh, there was a very, uh, I think, well done uh, uh, paper. It was in uh, neurosurgery in September uh, of this year. And it was uh, an update on the uh, guidelines dealing with decompressive craniotomy. craniotomy. And uh, they actually, uh, at the end, put together a section where they uh, they entitled it Incorporating the Evidence into Practice. Uh, and even that was almost a page long as they tried to sort of manage the issues. Uh, they, uh, I'll just, uh, they, they concluded that, you know, they basically forming a decompressive craniotomy is not a simple decision. Uh, and the benefits should be balanced against the complications and likely outcomes on a case-by-case -case basis. So after all that effort, we're still, I think we haven't moved the dial that far forward. And there is a lot of um, individual center bias about the value of decompressive crani craniectomy. Uh, you know, and doing the craniectomy is only one part of it. Uh, you then have, you have some patients where you do it and they will experience uh, brain herniation right through the defect, uh, which ends up damaging that part of the brain. That, you know, that plays into the issue of survival versus uh, quality of life and function afterwards. And then uh, at the end of the process, you have to return that bone flap. You have to do a cranioplasty. So uh, usually during a decompressive crani craniectomy, we freeze the uh, uh, bone flaps. There are centers where uh, they're doing trauma flaps. They'll put them into the uh, abdominal uh, wall, uh, just buried in fat, uh, and then take it out at the time of surgery. Uh, the uh, major issues with returning a deep, like doing a craniopathy, so others returning their bone flap, um, uh, is, the, the major issue is infection. The second major issue is resorption. Uh, so the infection rates, when you look at the literature, are pretty significant, probably five to 10%. Uh, and then you start getting into uh, what do you use to replace it if you don't use the bone flap or if the bone flap is infected? Uh, there are um, uh, pre-made uh, 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 craniplasty uh, pieces that you can model. Uh, you can get custom-made ones, and there's a growing uh, interest uh, and uh, uh, literature of a small series on uh, people with uh, centers of 3D print uh, their craniplasties uh, to put them in. The advantage of a form-fitting custom one is that it really does make a difference in terms of the ease of the operation and the cosmetic appearance. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of literature that comes out, a lot of literature that gets submitted regarding decompressive uh, craniectomy in terms of managing the downstream effects uh, and uh, turning it back uh, or putting back the, uh, uh, the uh, flap. Um, in the, and then there's, there's also the issues that occur in the middle. There's, there's this syndrome called uh, the syndrome of the trefined. Um, where the, they get a sunken appearance on their craniectomy side, like to the point where you can literally pour water and have it collect in the defect that happens, the brain collapses away from it. Uh, that can, uh, it has a number of different names, but that can be quite symptomatic in some patients. Uh, and uh, we've seen some patients who, when they get their bone flap put back, actually start to improve after that, uh, because that may have been hurting them as well. So again, it, it's, a, it's a very complicated uh, um, uh, issue. It needs a lot more work to sort through it. Uh, bottom line is I think decompressive craniectomy plays a role. I just, I, I do it on case-by-case -case basis, but I don't know any better based on my review of the literature. Timing is important. Just all these, these two uh, studies and others have not really dealt with um, doing a, a, a craniac craniotomy for acute subdural hematoma, leaving the bone flap off at that time. That's just not, the literature is not really good on that. There's been no prospective trial that I'm aware of. Uh, and then um, 
So knowing when to intervene is really important if you're going to intervene. Uh, you wait too long, damage has been done. If you operate too early, you're doing it on people that don't may not need it. And then dealing with the consequences of having done that operation, you have to at some point replace the bone flap, uh, do a cranioplasty and manage those potential complications and the symptoms that may occur in between those two events uh, as the patient's getting better, but still suffering from the consequences of the cranium or the decompressive uh, cranium. The last uh, question I wanted to ask you um, before we, we part ways, and, and uh, again, thank you for your time, surrounds, I think, another area that, that really is not so sorted out in the literature or in, or in CPGs in general, which is the, the use of chemical uh, DVT prophylaxis in patients with moderate TBIs and sometimes severe TBIs. And, you know, my, my anecdote, and I don't mean it to be offensive to anybody, but it, it's, it often in many of the places I've trained in and also worked um, seems up to, seems to be up to maybe a, a junior nurse or your resident who will just sort of arbitrarily say 48 hours or 24 hours or 72 hours. And, um, you know, I certainly realize in, in having delve deep into that literature that it is all over the place. But, you know, I, I do wonder a little bit when I reflect on the general surgical trauma side, and we've become in the last 10 years really aggressive about uh, chemical DVT prophylaxis. You know, I remember the days, as, as do you, I'm sure, when you would crack your spleen in a grade four injury and you'd be on bed rest and the whole rigmarole and you wouldn't get DVT prophylaxis at all. Well, now you can split your liver in half, you can split your your spleen in half, and we'll generally give that post-admission post day one in the morning, away we go. And you see very, very rarely any any issue with that. So I, I was wondering if you could frame the current status and the current beliefs as best you can with regard to chemical DVT prophylaxis for TBIs. Uh, another good question, and it's about as well sorted out as the decompressive craniectomy uh, uh, issue. Uh, I'll uh, just give you some um, uh, so this is an area that I've been interested in for a long time, and uh, I haven't delved tremendously into the uh, trauma literature recently, but when I look at, uh, <clears throat> i go back uh, when I was a resident, I was uh, interested in DBT, um, and DBT prophylaxis, uh, the consequences from DBT and PE, uh, and that uh, I didn't mention earlier on, but I was actually, uh, before I decided to become a neurosurgeon, I was heading to become a hematologist. And um, that was actually a, a, a just as interesting carried over. Uh, when I was a resident, I did a, a review of uh, uh, DBT uh, uh, prophylaxis and management in uh, neurosurgery uh, patients across the boards, looking at trauma, looking at spinal cord injury. Uh, it, it's um, there are some things that have not changed a lot since that was published, and that's back in the early '90s. I, I did a, um, uh, I worked with Bill Galley uh, as an uh, internist uh, and uh, uh, does a lot of work with uh, clinical research. We did a, a meta-analysis of DVT prophylaxis, uh, looking specifically at chemical DVT prophylaxis in uh, elective brain uh, uh, craniotomy, elective brain surgery. So patients coming for tumors for elective procedures, just to try and get a clean cohort. Uh, it when I look at um, when, when we finished that, it became obvious that there were a couple of things that stood out. One is that if you use chemical prophylaxis in these patients, there's an increased risk of bleeding, and that's not surprising. I mean, when you look at even the, uh, the literature on uh, aspirin uh, for um, prophylaxis of uh, you know vascular events and people have never had a vascular injury in one of those large population studies there's an instance of hemorrhage that's a little higher even with aspirin in that group when we looked at this there you know we looked at um, complications uh, specifically we wanted to look at the uh, those issues in relationship to the, also in relationship to the benefits and try and do a risk benefit ratio and i think that uh, there's when you, you come down to the chem so i think there is a risk but there is also a real benefit we emphasize the need for, when possible, use uh, pneumatics, uh, intermittent pneumatic uh, compression. Um, and those, I think, are effective uh, if, if people actually wear them. In the ICU, that's a little easier to enforce. Uh, uh, I've done audits uh, in the neurosurgical ICU and uh, found you know, up to 30% non-compliance. And I'm sure there are days when it's even worse than that. So they, again, as we all know, they only work if they're on the patient and 
functional. Uh, I, there is a, an interesting little paper buried in a, uh, and it, uh, in a, an obscure journal, um, but it was from the Salt Lake City experience with uh, uh, DVT prophylaxis and um, nurse surgery patients, craniotomy, patients undergoing uh, craniotomies. And one of the things they identified was that low molecular weight heparins seem to have a higher risk of hemorrhage. And what uh, the, the reason why uh, that's a big issue is that the consequences, I think, as we'd all agree with hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, uh, from the point of view of neurological function and outcome, can be quite devastating. And uh, trying to limit that, they found that there was an increased risk of low molecular weight heparins. Um, that was not that significant a risk with low-dose heparin, so unfractionated heparin. So I uh, <clears throat> I actually had gone through a phase where I was giving low-dose heparin before elective craniotomies, craniotomies rather, uh, and then carrying it on. Um, I, it, it generates a fair amount of angst when you have people undergoing craniotomies who are on uh, chemical prophylaxis at the time of their surgery. So I, I, I stopped doing that uh, I don't think the evidence was that overwhelming that it was beneficial, um, but I, I, I'm quite willing to start people on prophylaxis with unfractionated heparin very quickly, recognizing that unfractionated heparin carries the risk of uh, a hit, although it's not very high. Um, but so the the Salt Lake City, bring back the Salt Lake City protocol, and what I usually try and advocate is that we do uh, uh, stockings, um, uh, pneumatic stockings, intermittent pneumatic compression. Uh, we start um, uh, unfractionated heparin uh, either that night or the next morning. And then at 72 hours, we'll switch into low molecular weight heparin if they are not mobile. Uh, and so if, if a person's mobile four hours a day, they don't need to go on chemical prophylaxis. Now, the trauma patients are going to be not mobile, so they're going to they have to consider that. So I usually uh, will take that approach. That said, I think you're going to find incredible variability wherever you practice regarding this particular issue. And there's not going to be uh, a real consensus because nobody's really done the, try, uh, the studies properly. When we did this randomized, this uh, systematic meta-analysis on elective cranial surgery, there were a couple of studies that have been done in cranial patients comparing low molecular heparin to uh, uh, unfractionated heparin and the bleeding risks, although not statistically significant, were definitely higher. And one of the trials was actually stopped. Um, and they were definitely higher in that, in the, in the, low, low, uh, in fact, the um, low molecular weight heparin group. Uh, there was a study that was done uh, when I was uh, in the early 90s. I was a PI in Calgary for a spinal cord injury trial using uh, uh, low molecular weight heparin. It had to be stopped because of the uh, increased risk of epidural hematomas, spinal epidural hematomas, and the neurological consequences of that. And that paper was eventually published uh, quite a lot, long time after it was, the study was stopped, but it, it demonstrated the risks in that acute phase. So if I had to give a recommendation, I would say pneumatics, um, you know, if the patient is stable the next day, I think they can, well, personally, I think they can start on unfractionated heparin within uh, you know, less than 24 hours, uh, you know, 18 to 24 hours. And then if you're going to start low molecular weight heparin, uh, if they've had hemorrhage issues, we would usually rescan them. Um, and then we would um, uh, start them on low molecular weight heparin. Uh, the one proviso is that if they have a drain in place, an EBD, uh, that if there's any risk that that's going to have to be removed or replaced, those agents are going to have to be stopped with sufficient time to allow the, any potential risk to wear off. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks.